would invite you to turn with me, if you would, into your Bibles, specifically to Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 6, and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 10. I know your folder has a, uh, a longer uh, series of verses there, but uh, as I was putting it together this week, I determined I wanted to cut down the size <laughs> or the length of our time looking at um, the Song of Songs tonight, so we're only going to be going through 1 through 10, but it is a, uh, a unit by itself that deals with some important issues. As you will remember, in the previous chapter, the uh, Shulamite had a dream. Uh, her beloved had come to her. She was already asleep. She had already gone to bed. Her, uh, uh, she had taken off her clothes and had washed her feet and did not want to come and answer the door, but eventually her love was reborn or rekindled, and she went looking for him in her dream, and uh, unfortunately, the guardsmen of the city found her. They struck her. They took away her veil, and, uh, and unlike the earlier search in the previous chapter, this search was not as successful. But um, let us now take a look at what happened next, and we'll see the restoration of their relationship and hopefully we'll grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord as we consider it. Let's first seek the face of God, though, and ask for his help. Oh, God, our Father, we ask now, Lord, for your illumination as we seek to uh, search out the meaning of this particular poem, this great poem, this song of songs, uh, the greatest of all of those songs. We ask that you would help us to understand it better and to apply it. We know that there are two uh, different frames of reference. One that speaks of earthly love, the love between husband and wife in a covenant relationship. And the other, the even more important frame, the reference of uh, our love to you, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his love to his bride, the church. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to keep both in mind and that we would grow in our understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Song of Songs. And I'm going to be reading chapter 6 and verses 1 through 10. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. The daughters of Jerusalem, where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? The Shulamite. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies, the beloved. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, Many of you are 
unfortunately familiar with the language of compliments and that in a negative way. Uh, we expect a lot of the compliments that are given particularly by men to women to be uh, so much fluff. They are essentially smoke that is blown uh, in an attempt to uh, get the, the woman to feel um, amorous thoughts towards him. Uh, I love you, baby. You're so beautiful. That kind of, uh, that kind of approach. I'm reminded I was in Walgreens uh, about a month ago. I was standing in the pharmacy line, and I was listening as a young man uh, was desperately attempting to pick up a, a woman in the line. Um, and he was asking her these ridiculous questions. You know, it was, it was so staged. Are you from a foreign country? You sound like you're from a foreign country. I'm from Louisiana. That must be it. You sound French. You know, that kind of uh, approach she was taking. But at one point, he said, baby, you're like a Nubian princess. And everybody in the, in the line just fell about at that one. It was just, it had gone too far. And the older gentleman in front of me who was laughing, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, son, you're trying too hard, basically, was, was what he said. Uh, we all understood what was going on at that point in time. He was using compliments to try to, to woo this woman, to get her uh, to like him in order to get her phone number and so on. And it was obvious that she wasn't buying it. In fact, it was so obvious she wasn't buying it. Um, unfortunately, the world gets used to that. They get used to empty compliments, compliments that are thrown about in order to try to get uh, something out of the other person. But we need to remember as we read the Song of Solomon that that is not the case in this particular inspired poem. It, this is in, inspired scripture, and the conversation is between a husband and a wife. The, the relationship is already established. These are not empty compliments, but rather the, this is the language of active love. This is the language of the husband continuing to woo the wife uh, as uh, time goes on, and not doing so in a way where he is attempting simply to get what he wants, or maybe to turn away her wrath or something to that effect, but rather he's expressing the language of his soul, his soul's delight with her. The groom, who, when he speaks here, is honestly expressing, therefore, his love, his admiration, and his adoration for the Shulamite. She is his heart's desire. She is the one whom his heart was set upon from the very beginning. And so he is speaking now the way that he earnestly feels. She is the apple of his eye. The world may not appreciate her as much as he does. Others may say, I'm not quite sure what he sees in her, but this is what she is to him. She is everything. But um, this high estimation of her is now taken up, you'll see in the language of the poem, by the daughters of Jerusalem. She had once thought that she was nothing compared to all of these courtly women. She was uh, burned by the sun, too dark in her complexion. She couldn't be compared to these pasty women who spent all of their time under parasols and in the court and constantly applying cosmetics and so on. But rather, he saw her as something unique, something set apart. And that's something else that comes out in the language here, unlike them. Uh, she is the fairest of the women. If she's the fairest of the women to the king, then therefore she is the fairest of the women. That is who she is. So they ask, where has he gone, O fairest among women, that we might seek him with you? Which way did he go? Which way did he go that we might help you to find him? 
Now, remember that this episode is a continuation. Obviously, there was no chapter breaks originally when this poem was put together. It flowed uh, continuously. There were no verse breaks. There is uh, an episodic nature to the poem that we can discern. It moves from, from movement to movement, episode to episode, incident to incident, and um, in some cases, monologue or dialogue uh, together, rather like a, a play. This is a, a, the nature of a poem, but it wasn't broken up into to different chapters. The last chapter had that dreamlike quality. She was thinking, uh, her, her mind was unsettled, their relationship had a problem to it. There was that dreamlike quality, but nonetheless it was describing a genuine breakdown in their relationship, as in most married relationships. Most married relationships, I know when, when people are, are contemplating marriage, they conceive of this continuous upward climb uh, that will simply continue their romance before they got married and everything will be fine but actually marriage is a series of high highs and low lows one of the things that I have often warned couples I I did it quite recently I said the most um, the most wonderful events in your life are yet ahead of you as you are preparing for marriage the highest highs that you will ever experience in your life are awaiting but I warn you the lowest lows, the deepest valleys, the most profound pains and hurts are also ahead of you. That is part of married life. It is inevitable that it would come on this side of glory as you enter into this lifelong relationship with a sinner. And remember, the Lord was not kidding. When Jesus gave us this, uh, he was talking to his people and he was talking about the importance of not just hearing his word, but doing it putting it into application. He gave the example, you remember, of two houses. One house was built on sand, one house was built on solid rock. The house built on solid rock was a representation of what happens when we hear the word of the Lord and then we put it into application in our lives. The house built on sand, of course, was the people who merely hear the word of God and then dismiss it and and attempt to live their lives the way they want. But the thing that is common amongst the two houses is the fact that there's a storm that blows against both of them. One falls, the other stands. But in this life, the storms will come. You will have difficulties in your married life, in your family. But if we're listening to the word of the Lord, if we're depending upon him, we have that assurance that we will endure those storms. That's something that this poem also is trying to show us, that married life is not perfect. And our relationship with the Lord often goes through those those deep valleys and those high hills. But nonetheless, it is constant and that the Lord's covenant promises remain the same. And therefore, there should be a reflection of the Lord's covenant promises in the covenant that we make in our marriage, going back and forth between marriage and the relationship to the Lord. But in any event, we are now seeing a recovery from the breakdown in the relationship that happened. A problem had occurred. He had come to her, and she had refused him, and he had gone away. Her love had grown cold, so to speak, towards her, her love. And after her love was reawakened, she searched for him. She became active in going after him. Now her answer stresses the renewal of their relationship. When the daughters of Jerusalem ask, where is he that we might look for him? Her answer speaks of a renewal, particularly the physicality of their relationship. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the garden and to gather lilies. Now, 
you would have to be very, very slow not at this point to realize she is his garden. Okay, that, is, that has been made very clear. It was made absolutely clear in chapter 4. So there has been a renewal once again of the, the physicality of their relationship. She, as emphasized in chapter 4, is his garden and he has delighted once again to return to her. Their relationship is restored and the unbreakable reality of that relationship is now in view before us. And this is a point that, that Christ stressed, not only about the believer's relationship to him. You remember again and again, as he is speaking to us in chapters like John chapter 6, John chapter 10, he talks about the fact that no one can snatch the elect. No one can snatch the, the bride from his hand. She cannot be lost. Once those whom the Father has selected and brought to the, the Son are his, they are always his. Once we are betrothed to that particular bridegroom, that particular marriage covenant is unbreakable. But he also stressed the way that our marriage covenants should be unbreakable as well. Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew and chapter 19. This, of course, this incident came as the Pharisees were testing him. And there we read this. Now it came to pass, this is Matthew 19, chapter 1, I mean verse 1, rather. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the idea being there is that once we've entered into that one flesh relationship, that language, of course, comes to us from Genesis chapter 2 in the very establishment of marriage. Once that has been effected, that it should never be torn apart. It would be literally a rending of the flesh. It's one of the reasons why we say as we are marrying people, that is pastors, as they're marrying people, say what God has joined together, let no man separate. We are literally repeating the words of the Lord Jesus Christ regarding that covenant, whether it be the members of that particular covenant union or those outside of it who might attempt to split a couple apart. It should not be the case. Just as our relationship, our covenant relationship with Christ is inseparable, our marriage vows, they too, should be a covenant that is inseparable as well. But also the author of Hebrews, I want you to see this as well, weaves the relationship in with the unbreakable nature of, uh, of the bride of Christ, relationship to the bridegroom Christ. He too, like Paul, moves from, and it could be Paul who wrote Hebrews, I'm not saying he didn't, but uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, in any event, he does move from the idea of our relationship to Christ to the nature of our relationship together and the, the covenantal nature of it. In Hebrews 13, and starting with verse 4, we read there, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me as he progresses through there? He can talk about the marriage bed and then talk about the the way that we should not be adulterers and fornicators and covet other men's wives because there's a reflection there of the covenantal nature of Christ's relationship to us who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. Yes, our relationship to the Lord may have peaks and valleys, but his covenant promises to us are unbreakable. Remember that the Lord does not change. He doesn't love you one day and hate you the next. He is not fickle. He is not arbitrary. If ever he has loved you, he will always love you. If you are his, then he is yours and he always will be. That covenant promise is unbreakable. Understand that. And as we see this idealized relationship, we note also that they have this this mutual covenant commitment to one another. What does she say? She says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so in, in spite of the difficulties that they have had, she remembers that covenantal nature. Uh, after the, uh, the time of difficulty, they have come back together again. That should be something that we have in our minds. As we go through difficulties in our earthly marriages, we should be thinking to ourselves, this is a season. This is a time. One of the things that has happened is uh, we've, we've gotten to the point where we're so leisure and personal indulgence oriented that if something doesn't feel good for a time, we immediately dispense with it. We've forgotten that most things that are worth having require effort, they require work, and they are often difficult. It is no easy thing, for instance, to, to farm, to plant things, to nurture them as they grow. It requires hard effort following the fall. It's not simply the case that we can put out our hand and take the fruit of the garden any longer. There must be the, the hard work. Marriage involves work, brothers and sisters. It will produce wonderful harvests, a bounty, a fruit of delightsome things, but it still requires that we put effort into it. It is not something where the fruit falls into our hand and continues to do so. It is something that we must work upon. And it's the same with our relationship with Christ. We must be part of that work of sanctification going on in us. We realize, of course, that it's his grace that keeps us going. It's he who works in us to will and to do. It's he who is the perfecter of our faith. It's he who will keep us going. It's he who prays for us, intercedes for us, and so on. But nonetheless, we must attend upon the means of grace. We must be involved in prayer. We've got to be going to him. We must be seeking him. If our love to Christ has grown cold, the problem is not Christ. The problem is us, brothers and sisters. In an earthly relationship, we can often say, yes, it it frequently takes two to mess up a marriage. Both of them bouncing off each other and and gradually growing cold and indifferent in their relationship and, and the division occurring. But when the division occurs between you and Christ, it's not Christ who's the problem. It never is. It is you who has stepped away. Please understand You cannot leave the narrow path and begin walking in the broad path that leads to destruction and expect Christ to follow you. Rather, we must 
once we realize we have done that, leave that path of destruction, that path of foolishness, that path of folly, and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, under his dispensations, under his love, under his care, under his ordinances, his sacraments, and the means of grace he has given, we will find that our love grows stronger and stronger. This is what happened in the poem. She sought after him when she realized that she had been rejecting her, not just lover, the the analogy is her savior. And she went after him and found him, and the relationship is restored. I am my beloved's. And note that it switches from my beloved is mine and I am his to I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. It switches around entirely. The order is reversed from chapter 2, verse 16. It emphasizes the fact that, that the earlier selfishness, and that's something that has to die in marriage. If you want a good marriage, you've got to die to self. You really do. You have to become small. Christ, it's not, your, it's not just your, that your, your beloved must become second in your heart. They have to. But Christ has to grow until he is the, the most important thing in your marriage. If both of you are seeking after Christ and seeking to serve him and build the kingdom in your own, heart, in your own homes, rather, then your hearts will be warm to one another as well. That is inevitably the way. Now, she is, she is eager at this point to affirm that she belongs to her lover. I am my beloved. This is another theme that, that we see throughout the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for instance, we have this admonition from Paul. Starting in verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Please understand that. It's not that she has to earn it. It is due her. We are commanded, you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, also by Paul. What is the command given to husbands there? Husbands what? Love your wives. And there's no conditionality to that. There's no clause if they love you or if they're worthy of love or if they meet all of your criteria. It's a simple command. Husbands, love your wives. And we remember we go back to Christ. Does Christ set conditionality for the church? Or does he simply love the church? He loves his bride. He is the one who woos her. He is the one who is shaping and sanctifying her. So too, the husband must love his wife. And he must remember to render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. There is no conditionality on the other side. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here we have a great truth being spoken of here. In marriage, we cease to be our own. We become the property of one another in that one flesh relationship, and we should not be depriving one another. We should never be using the bed, for instance, as a weapon against one another. It should be the case that when there are difficulties, that the most important thing to us, as it was to the Shulamite in the poem, is to reconcile, to make sure that the relationship is put right and not to rest until that relationship is restored. Now, Ian Duguid, who's one of the commentators on this uh, particular book, he makes a, a good point about the nature of marriage and the work that it involves. I said it involves work, it does. He says, marriage is not the cure-all for lovesickness, nor does it mean an end to the need to search and pursue one another in order to attain intimacy. It is easy for a husband and a wife to become out of step with each other, not least in the realm of physical intimacy. 
If left uncorrected, these difficulties can result in a couple drifting apart and losing touch with each other. She may end up painfully tormenting herself over missed opportunities and lost intimacy. The remedy for the woman lay in what follows, searching eagerly for him no matter how painful the pursuit, pondering and declaring the manifold beauty of her husband, remembering and recounting everything that she once saw in him. In such a way, she rekindled the romance that she had lost. Here is wise counsel, not just for wives, but for husbands as well. In those times of marital estrangement, remember what brought you together. Remember who brought you together. And then seek with his help to rekindle that flame that was once there. The same is, of course, true, to our spiritual, uh, true with our spiritual relationship to Christ, although, as I said, the problem is always on our side. It should be the case that if we feel estranged from Christ, we must seek him. If we feel distant, if we feel unheard in our prayers. One of the things that the Puritans always emphasized was that if you feel like your prayers are only ascending a few feet into the air and then falling like dead fish upon the floor and flopping around, continue to pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray that the Lord would, would give you joy in your prayers. Pray that your prayers would penetrate the, the, the cloud that has come between you and turn from the sins that have estranged you from your master, even if that sin is simply being negligent in the means of grace, not attending upon his worship, not spending time in the fellowship of the saints, not spending time praying and reading his word. It should not surprise you that estrangement from Christ follows when you stop listening to him. When one member of a marriage starts, stops rather listening to the other person, stops communicating with them, estrangement inevitably follows. And if we stop hearing and speaking to our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ, then an estrangement, a distance will spring up. Now, she isn't deluded when she talks about her reconciliation. The man returns, obviously, in the poem uh, to confirm that the reconciliation is real. And he, uh, again, uh, affirms his love to her. He speaks these, these words of love. And um, in contrast to where they were, you know, just individually saying, this is my beloved, and then she describes him and so on. This is, this is the face-to-face dialogue of the couple. Now, he compares her, first of all, you'll notice here, looking at, uh, you'll turn to the text. Oh, this is verse 4. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as tears, are lovely as Jerusalem. We aren't used to people being compared to to cities in our own age. Uh, We might be amused to hear somebody compared to a particular city, but Tirza was one of the most beautiful cities, and Jerusalem certainly was the most beautiful city. Tirza was in the north, and of course Jerusalem was in the Jordan River Valley. Uh, I'm reminded of the song by Cole Porter, you're the top, and the, uh, the various, um, I, I drive my wife crazy because I misquote this song continuously in her presence, singing it to her very badly. You're the top, you're the Colosseum, you're the top, you're the Louvre Museum, you're a melody from a symphony by Strauss, you're a Bendel Bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet, you're Mickey Mouse, you're the Nile, you're the Tower of Pisa, you're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop, but if baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Although those words were obviously not inspired, the idea being that the comparison to Tirza in Jerusalem is like comparing her to the smile on the Mona Lisa. She is incomparable. She is unique. She is beautiful in a multifaceted kind of way. 
When the disciples came up to Jerusalem, they too were amazed by the beauty of the city. One of the things about the Temple of Solomon was that the, as the pilgrims were going up, because you went up to Jerusalem, it was on the mountains, they would see the, the, the dome to it, or the, uh, the roof to it, which had been overlaid with gold. Uh, you know, it would sparkle in the sunlight. And they would see the, the sun reflecting off the, the marble. It was illumined. It was amazing especially to them who had grown up in these small villages. Well, that is what she is to him. She is amazing. She is illuminated. Um, the city's names also are probably significant. Jerusalem means city of peace, and it connects with the idea of Shulamite, as we'll see. Is the, she's the peace-filled one. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 8. And Tirsa, uh, it actually sounds like rasa. It means to desire, to take pleasure in. The woman is beautiful. She is desirable. She is the source of peace. She is, as the French would say, formidable. She is awe-inspiring an army with banners. Uh, moving. She's not just beautiful in that, uh, that meek and, and, and uh, retiring kind of way. She is a presence. She is something uh, amazing. And this is a, a new note in the way that he is describing her. He's comparing her to an army uh, under banners. And he is, he is um, put, put to shame by her eyes. Uh, it, before you remember, he had described her eyes. And it's that description, I, I'm not even quite sure what they're talking about, the dove's eyes thing. You have dove's eyes. My, okay, you've got dove's eyes. Well, you know, they're gray, they're soft. I'm not quite sure what it means. But now, he, you know, the, uh, the, the eyes, he asks her to turn her gaze away from him because it overwhelms him. It causes him to tremble. She's looking into his soul. She has this mysterious power over him that is, is just, uh, it's too much. It's overwhelming and so on. And then he once again describes her attractiveness. Uh, we'll notice that the uh, descriptions, they do become more racy in the next chapter. Happily, this is not a racy chapter or a racy series of descriptions. So uh, people like my, my youngest daughter will be happy to hear that I will not be talking about that kind of thing uh, today. He stays above the neck in his descriptions here. Uh, he doesn't make allusions to kissing as he did before. And it's possible that he's making these allusions. He is reminding us that it shouldn't be that when we compliment our beloved that obviously we're, we keep looking uh, at allusions for physical lovemaking. That's, that's what uh, the only thing that we're, we're talking about. Uh, that's not his, obviously, his only interest in the Shulamite. Uh, once again, we see that he is, of course, in awe of her teeth. Uh, there is none bereaved among them. Now, we are wondering, why is he so captivated by her dental work? Well, to, to make it to adulthood with a perfect set of teeth was very uncommon in the ancient world, admittedly. Uh, white teeth to this day are still uncommon in the world. I grew up in England. I, I didn't see white teeth until I came to the United States. And the idea that everybody's teeth would be perfect and orderly and so on was just utterly alien. But in this case, uh, she has this mouthful of perfect, healthy teeth. This is the idealized relationship, of course. And incidentally, uh, you know, you can marry a hockey player and, and it'd still be okay that they are missing teeth and, and so on. Um, or an Englishman, for instance. Some people have been able to do that. Um, now, verse 7, if I can just step aside uh, for one second from expositing, uh, I, I hope as, as clearly as possible. I have to admit I have great difficulty understanding, like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. And most commentators that I found 
they, they just, they either change this verse, bizarrely enough, or they ignore it. Um, it, it befuddles me. Uh, a lot of translations simply take the word temples and they make it into cheeks. And then the idea is, therefore, that's easy. Okay, pomegranates are red, so your cheeks are rosy. You have rosy cheeks, my love. But that is a complete cop-out translationally. Cheek is lecky. This is raka. It means temple. For instance, jail, for instance, drove the, eye, the nail into Sisera's raka. Not his cheek. His temple. Nowhere in the Old Testament... Does raka mean cheek? And they just do that. There are actual Bible translations that, that make this... I can understand why. It makes it intelligible in the English, perhaps. But I don't think that was what it is intended. Now, when I get to heaven, I will be asking, what did you mean by pomegranate temple? I, I don't... You know, rosy temple? Your, your, your temples are red, my dear? Or something to that effect? I have no idea. But uh, he understood what he meant, and the Lord understood what he meant. But I have to tell you, most commentators have no clue what he's talking about there. So, anyway. Verse 8, he says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Uh, The idea is, it it doesn't matter. You can have all these concubines, all these queens, and yet they are nothing compared to you, my love. That's what he's saying. Just as she had said earlier, remember, that if you were to set him amongst 10,000 soldiers, he would still stand out. He would still be unique. She placed amongst all the concubines and the queens in a royal harem. She would still be unique. She would still be the one he desires. She would still be the one he would pick every single time. And in verse 9, he, he goes on to emphasize that. My dove, my, my perfect one, he's, he talks about her uniqueness, her superiority. I didn't just pick you because you were a woman and you fit, you know, uh, the, the elementary criteria. I picked you because I set my love upon you. I desired you to be the one to me. And not just for time, but for eternity. This is the kind of way that the Lord selects us, chooses us, elects us. Uh, there's a repetition in the, I won't stress it, in verse 9 of the, uh, of the Hebrew word echad, which means one. Uh, she's a one of a kind. She's, she's got a beauty and a uniqueness all her own. And then uh, we have in verse 10 this incredibly uh, Incredible description. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? One commentator uh, uh, drew my attention to uh, um, the the work of Yeats, uh, the night and the light and the half light, as he used in his um, in his poem. But she's like the night sky. She's like. Uh, the sun at, at, at uh, noonday. She's like the breaking of the morning. Uh, these are, it's a glorious image. Now, is this genuinely how the church is? Well, no, not, not here on earth. We are not that glorious, let's face it. We can be pretty messed up. But the day is coming when we will be. Just so, let us face it, we may love, and I hope you do, we may love our spouse with an abiding love, a deep love, an unbreakable love. And I hope you do. But let's face it, we are sinners. And we are not perfect. But we look at the person whom the Lord has given us and we think not of who they are now, but who they will be. You remember in Ephesians 5, the calling of the man is to sanctify 
his wife, to do everything that he can to uh, move her in the direction of godliness so that inwardly she is becoming brighter and brighter and more and more perfect, more and more inwardly illuminated by the love of Christ, more filled with the love of Christ, more conformed to the image of Christ. That's the calling of the husband. And the wife is to be the helpmeet, helping him in that process as it works not only in their relationship but in the family that God gives them. That is the idea. We look and we see the Lord within one another. We see what the Lord is doing. So in marriage, understand this. Our hope for marriage is not grounded merely in the human abilities that we have or the human attributes that we have, the outward physical beauty. While that may be amazing and ravishing and we may see it in our loved one well into our 80s or 90s or however old you are, yet unfortunately we remember beauty is fading. Just as flowers wither and die, so do we. But we look beyond that to see within them the abiding love of Christ that we respond to, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. And we think of, of the intimacy that we have with this person, the, the soulmate uh, quality that we have. And that should keep our relationship delightful in the best sense of that particular word. The fact is we find in this person a Christ-like quality because of his work within them. And it is lovely and it is unmarrable, if I can make up a new word. And so we see here this model for our love to our loved ones in the, the absolutely faithful covenant love of God that should captivate and capture our hearts. And it is Christ's commitment that we, we see displayed again and again. Although we are not worthy of Christ's love, if you think you're worthy of Christ's love, think again, you are not. You did nothing to qualify yourself for salvation. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was your sin, which he had to pay for in his death on the cross. And yet, how does he see you? He sees you as lovely. He looks forward to what he will be in eternity and what he is going to make for himself. He sees you when you will be blameless and perfect And he is continuing that work in your life. Let me ask you, therefore, can you not love the sinner whom God has given to you? Can you not see the Christ-likeness or the work gradually? It may be faint, you know, the image, the outline gradually being being brought uh, out in that person whom you've married in Christ. If you've entered into that covenantal relationship, then you should be able to see Christ in the one whom he has given you, your husband or your wife. They will never be this side of eternity, blameless and perfect. And yet, we are called to love them. We're called to be patient. We are called to be long-suffering, even as Christ is long-suffering with you. If Christ was as impatient with you as often we are with our spouses, oh my word, wouldn't that be awful? What would we have suffered through? But instead, he is long-suffering. He continues on with us, and he, he gives us that unbreakable covenant union. We, therefore, are encouraged by his love to us to seek reconciliation here on earth with our loved ones when we go through those, those troughs. We have a beautiful marriage for, or model, rather, for our marriage given in the marriage between Christ and his bride even as it's going through difficulties here on earth. Now, it it can be 
difficult for us to believe that Christ delights in us. We think of our, our personal history. We think of the sins that we have, uh, we have committed. We, we could look back at the terrible record of failures, of times when we have known what we should have done and instead did something wrong, times when we have been merciless and cruel and impatient and, and just generally wretched and sinful. And we could say, how could Christ ever love someone like me? Well, we look at the Song of Solomon and we see the way that Christ loves the church, the way he sees her, the way that he speaks to her. You are lovely because he is the one who is washing her. He is the one who is making her perfect. He is the one who is encouraging her and so on. This should be encouragement to your souls, brothers and sisters. You, if you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, then you have a certain salvation. Not, I hope I'll make it to heaven, but rather the bridegroom will certainly bring you there at the end. And if you have that hope in Christ, then you will never be hopeless, never be subject to despair, no matter what difficulties you are going through, perhaps what estrangement from the Lord that you are suffering from because of things that you have done. You know that you can always return. You know that he will never leave you nor forsake you and that he is never further from you than a prayer. And so you have always an abiding hope. The Christian, know this, brothers and sisters, is never hopeless. You never have an excuse to despair and to give up for Christ loves you with an unbreakable love and he will be there for you when you turn to him. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I do thank you, Lord, that you are the one who welcomes back the prodigal. You gave us the example of the, the Shulamite and Solomon. Elsewhere in Scripture, you gave us the example of Hosea and Gomer, this prostitute, representing your people as unworthy of love as can be, and yet you sent Hosea to go and redeem her at, the, at a high cost. So, too, you redeemed us. And you are making us into something entirely new. Help us then, O Lord, not to believe the lies of the devil. He may be at our elbow. He may be whispering, you are not worthy. But remind us in that moment that although, yes, we are sinners, that there is a Savior. And we are connected to him by faith and an unbreakable covenant bond. And so we can answer, get thee behind me, Satan. I have one who loves me and who will love me forever. And that be the truth. Oh, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.